Good morning to all the cave dwellers out there. And I say morning because it is. It's Friday, July 26th, early in the morning here at the Dan Cave Studios in lovely, sunny Maple Valley, Washington. Had some technical difficulties yesterday with the episode, ran out of time, couldn't get it uploaded, and I was just going to record the entire thing over from scratch today because there are some moments in the episode that are that are dated where I refer to today and yesterday and some news of the day. But the more I thought about it, when I woke up this morning, I thought if I do that, if I re-record it, it may sound a little bit forced or scripted or disingenuous. And this is the season one finale. So I'm just going to play it in its entirety as it was recorded yesterday. Again, this is the finale of season one. Season two kicks off next week. I hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. This week on the season one finale of the Dan Cave. The Seahawks finally hit the practice field. Their first full squad training camp workout was today. I'll bring you up to speed on some possible good news about to come down. I'll give you my three biggest questions as camp kicks off. And Earl Thomas is at it again. I'll have my reaction to his latest dumbassery. We'll check the Twitter, see if any Mariner trades come down while I'm recording today, a week ahead of the Major League Baseball trade deadline. And I'll recap my best and worst takes of the year. As season one of the Dan Cave comes to a close, all that and another voice message from a listener coming up next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. All right, you guys, we are here. We are officially at the end of season one of the Dan Cave podcast. I made it. We made it. Very consistent listenership from you out there. So thank you for those of you who have been with me from the beginning and also uh, recently gotten some comments from some people that have just discovered the podcast and like what I'm doing. So thank you for the support. Bigger and better things are ahead. I've got some cool things planned for season two, which begins next week. But let's get right to it because we have a lot to cover today. Seahawks are finally playing football. The entire squad is at VMAC in Renton. Rookies and veterans all together. Their first full squad practice today beautiful day finally summer has arrived maybe it was just waiting this year for the Seahawks to arrive because usually by the end of July we're we're getting ready for seafare here and it's almost where you start to feel the downhill side of summertime but we didn't get the weather we usually get the first part of July until now so it kind of feels like summer's just starting fitting that the Seahawks would be on the practice field today as that happened Um, before I get to what happened on the practice field or or issues that pertain to the Seahawks today. Uh, something happened yesterday, and I just have to address it. I didn't want to. I was fired up about it when I saw it yesterday. I thought, well, I'm going to let it go. I've already, I've already been down that road uh, months ago when all this came to a head originally. Uh, but Earl Thomas had to go crack open that can of worms again. In an interview yesterday with Josina Anderson of ESPN, uh, he doubled down on some of his comments that he's made in the past. And essentially the big headline grabber in this thing was that Thomas says, and he admits freely on camera, that the middle finger that he threw up in the air when he broke his leg at Arizona last year um, was directed solely for Pete Carroll. 
Not at the organization as a whole, not at John Schneider, uh, not at any of the other coaches, not at any of the other players. Pete Carroll. And I just, I can't wrap my head around this. Other than to understand that Earl Thomas is crazy. That he's slightly delusional. At best, he's disillusioned. That his priorities are just out of whack. That his perspective is out of whack. And I know that professional athletes think differently than we do. We, we all like to think that we know what we would do if we were in their shoes. But they're, they're paid beyond any of our imaginations for what they do. Um, they get to play in front of full stadiums. Um, they have the adulation of adoring fans. It's, it's a different reality than we live in. And so I'm willing to forgive when these guys let it go to their heads sometimes. Or when it's just part of their shtick. Like I think it is with Richard Sherman. I think the day Richard Sherman finishes playing football, nothing but appreciation is going to come out of his mouth about his time with the Seahawks. He'll be inducted in the Ring of Honor almost immediately. Everything will be fine. He'll come back and be a part of the organization in some way. I think the things that Sherman says, it's just part of his act, his persona, which is somewhat contrived. Earl Thomas, I think, is just kind of off his rocker. The reason he says that he flipped off Pete Carroll after he broke his leg is that he says Carroll lied to him. That he lied to him about the fact that he wanted to sign Earl to a new contract. That he wanted to get that done. And this... it, it It's amazing to me well, maybe it's not. I've said before on this podcast that that fans sometimes irrationally get attached to athletes and support them no matter what because ultimately in their dream world, they'd like to be liked by that athlete. It's why they try to at them sometimes on Twitter because they're hoping to get a retweet or an answer and they want to be homies with the athletes and so they're afraid to say anything that might be might be critical of them. Um... I'm not. I just want to tell it how it is. And I think Thomas is way off base here. And it's amazing to me how how many fans are on his side. There's a lot of takes out there of uh, the Seahawks really botched this one. They should have just paid him. They should have paid him whatever he wanted. Because that's what Earl had said. Pay me or trade me. Right? He thinks he was disrespected. And a lot of fans think that we disrespected a historically great player. And in doing so, lost him when he could have still been wearing a Seahawks uniform and the team on the field would have been better for it. But here's the thing. Earl's pissed that he didn't get paid on his terms. On his terms. He made it very clear he wanted to be the highest paid safety of all time. Even though when Eric Berry signed his deal, safety salaries were getting out of whack. And since he and Earl signed their deals... The market had stabilized. It's a position that many organizations have devalued a bit. They scheme for it now. They don't necessarily need an elite single high safety like Earl Thomas plays. That's why guys like Trey Boston are still on the street. Can't get paid. 
you can't just kowtow to every player's demands. You can't criticize the Seahawks for not paying Earl because Earl wanted ridiculous money. Money that was unrealistic given his injury history and given the way he'd been acting in the locker room in the year or two leading up to it. And given the fact he was about to turn 30, he was an undersized safety throwing his body around. There were questions about how well he would age. So the Seahawks, I believe, were willing to sign him, were willing to pay him significant money, but it had to be on their structure, the structure they believe in and they're consistent with everybody else. You can't just say, just pay him whatever they want to keep him. That's what got the Seahawks in the in trouble in the first place. 2013, 14, 15, they paid everybody, especially on defense. They just wanted to keep them. They couldn't stand the thought of losing any of those seven, eight, nine elite level guys on defense. They paid them all. And then they didn't have money to fill out the rest of the roster, and they let the offensive line go, and they didn't have depth, and it hurt them. And they're still recovering from that. Still recovering from that. They have to be more selective now, and they've shown that they're willing to do so. They're going to let some people go. I believe they wanted to keep Earl, and I believe an offer was made. We're never going to know what that offer was, unless Earl tells us someday. But I don't, I don't know that I would believe him. So just because Earl didn't get the crazy money he was looking for, he disrespects the organization. So that's what I think the they should have paid him crowd is missing. But here's what else I believe. I think Earl did this to himself and he's still failing to take accountability for that. If he had played this better, if he'd been a good soldier, come to camp, reported to practice, worked with the young guys, said the right things, all while telling the Seahawks, I want a new deal. I want to be a Seahawk. I want to be compensated. Let's work this out. You think the Seahawks would have been more willing to do a deal under those circumstances? I do. I think an extension would have gotten done. Thomas, the player, was too important to that team and that defense. But when he started acting and talking like an ass... I think he helped punch his own ticket out of town. Remember, this is the same guy who a year before in an interview with ESPN had said that he expected the Seahawks to kick him to the curb. And then he says, Carroll lied? How about Thomas? Remember John Schneider going on the record last offseason that it was his understanding from Thomas's representatives that he wasn't going to be holding out that he expected him to report to camp. But what happened? He held out. So it goes both ways. I've seen this happen before. Up close, in personal. I've seen it happen in my 13-year restaurant and bar management career. In fact, it's happened to me. And also to people that I've worked with and managed. It goes like this. For one reason or another, you start to feel disrespected at work. You feel slighted, not appreciated or compensated well enough. 
not getting the time off you were promised, not getting the raised you were promised, not getting the praise you think you deserve, seeing other people treated better than you even though you do the dirty work and you think you're a more valuable employee than they are. And even though you think you're working through it and it's just in your head and, and, and you're, you'll be fine, subconsciously it's eating away at you and you start feeling more cynical, more bitter. You start wondering if the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And then it starts to manifest itself and it starts to come out just in little ways. Things you say, the look on your face, you might have kind of that resting bitch face or not be as cheerful as you usually are, even though you think you are. And in my case, I've gone through that a couple times. I've gone through it and lost my job and been blindsided by it. What the hell? I'm your, I'm your most valuable employee. In retrospect, I can look back and think, well, maybe, maybe they were they were getting that vibe from me. Maybe what I thought I was keeping deep down inside was coming out. It affects, I, I'm a firm believer that how you think affects how you act. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of books out there that are written about that. That's how you turn around your attitude. I have a more recent example. A couple months ago at work, I had a bad night at work and I got kind of cranky with a customer and it came back to me and I got called on it. And it was a wake-up call. And I had to look myself in the mirror and ask, I'm happy here, right? Love it here. I'm treated well. It's a job that I enjoy. I don't want to screw that up, right? So I had to consciously flip that switch and realize that, that whatever I was feeling, and it was mostly just, I just needed some time off, just feeling a little burned out, right? It was nothing I had against the company at all super happy where I work but I was letting kind of that physical exhaustion get to me mentally ever since then I consciously go to work every day and I and I and I make my brain lead the way I'm gonna have a great attitude today I'm gonna treat people really well I'm gonna treat everybody special and you know what my performance is better because I'm happier doing things the right way for the right reasons it's the opposite of what Earl Thomas was doing every day he came to work all he could think about is they're disrespecting me was Carroll so bad to play for? really? you know what Pete Carroll did for Earl Thomas? he drafted him above his own college safety Taylor Mays was a star for him at USC from the Seattle area First round grade for most teams. Ended up getting picked later in the first round. Carroll took Thomas over his own guy. And then what did he do? He tailored the entire scheme to his abilities. It's quite possible that Thomas would not be on the doorstep of the Hall of Fame if he wasn't taken by the Seahawks. Oh, and then he was handed a huge second contract, $40 million. Yet Thomas was still whining last offseason about how he was going to take care of his kids, how he was going to have health insurance in his old age. I don't know, maybe manage your millions? Maybe plan? Look at the other side of the coin. 
because we have a direct contradiction to the way Thomas handled things. Bobby Wagner. Bobby's in the exact same position that Earl was last year. Finishing up his second contract, about to turn 30, wants to be the highest paid in the league at his position, still playing an elite level, but he's saying and doing all the right things. He's coming to camp, and even though he's not practicing because he doesn't want to risk injuring himself before he signs a new deal, he's working with the rookies. He's observing all the drills. He's working with the team, saying all the right things about wanting to be here, and guess what? All indications are sometime in the next 48 to 72 hours, probably early next week at the latest, Bobby's going to get that extension. He's going to be a Seahawk for life. Two great players. Same team, same coach, same organization. It's the perception of the player, and it's the way the player dealt with this situation. It's the difference between one being here and one not being here. And it's just, it's just really a shame that Earl had to make this breakup so nasty because it's on him. It's 100% on him, and I hope that someday he's willing to look back and admit that. So training camp open today. As I said, um, some good news this week, the fact that Will Disley and Ziggy Anza did not have to start the season on the pup list. Um, is a real positive sign that both players could be ready for week one or at least one of the first couple games. Remember, if they start the regular season on the pup list, then they have to sit out six games like Ed Dixon did last year. Uh, But that's not going to be the case for either of these players. So uh, signs are pointing upwards for both of them. Um, But I got another listener message this week, and it pertains to the Seahawks. And so I want to play that now, and then we will address it. Here you go. Hi, Dan. Cave Dweller Erica here. I just had a quick question for you. So what do you think it's going to be like to have Reed out for six games? Do you think the suspension is fair? And how do you think it will actually affect Reed as well, since he had his best professional year last year? What are your thoughts? Thank you, Erica. Appreciate you calling in. I say calling in. It sounds like a phone call, right? It's it's a voice message. And again, you can leave these for me by going to anchor.fm slash the Dan Cave. And you'll see the button right there. Leave a voice message. Click on it. You can just record it on your phone. Ask me anything you want to ask me. And I'll plug it into the, into the show just like this. And I'll answer it. Erica, here's how I feel about the Jaron Reed situation. Um... A couple of things. Huge blow to the defense. Huge blow. This front four was already the biggest question mark going into training camp. And um, Reed being gone only makes it... I wouldn't even call it a question mark anymore. It's a its a huge red flag and it's a huge weakness. And, and to the point that when I did the 16-game schedule prediction piece for Seahawk Maven, I had the Seahawks winning 11 games. I had them going 4-2 and two in that first six, and the real surprise there was I, th- I had them pulling off an upset at Pittsburgh in Week 2. I think Pittsburgh may struggle on offense early in the year, figuring out life without Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown and working in new guys. 
They were not very good on defense last year. Thought we could run the ball against them. Um, the Jaron Reed being out, I think, is the difference between them winning that game and not winning that game. And now you, we have to hope, and this is something we'll talk about more in depth later on, but we have to hope the Seahawks can go 3-3 three and three in those first six before Jaron Reed comes back. Uh, if there's any chance this team's going to challenge for a division title. But as far as do I think the suspension is warranted, I read the Bob Condota piece from the Seattle Times on the police report, even though prosecutors didn't didn't press charges. Uh, the details in the police report are not pretty. And if Jaron Reed did what he's reported to have done, and the NFL obviously believes he did, uh, to that young woman, then then yes, he deserves the suspension. Do I like the way the league handled it? No. A case that was over two years old, that didn't get filed, and wasn't prosecuted through legal channels, to the point that I was talking to Corbin Smith about this, and he said the same thing on his podcast. Like, I had forgotten about this. I thought it was fake. Suspended? Suspended for what? I had to go back and brush up on it. Yet, two years later, just out of the blue, they hand down a six-game suspension. Two weeks after announcing that Tyreek Hill was not going to be suspended, despite the fact he was caught on audio tape, threatening the mother of his child, a child who had a broken arm that he's suspected of breaking. So, there's inconsistency. I think the way the policy, the policy is administered, the way the punishment is handed down is inconsistent. But the bottom line is, if Jaron Reed did what he's reported to have done, he deserves the suspension. Now we just have to get past it. I have another problem with the way Jaron Reed's handling this. He spoke today after practice. And it, it never ceases to amaze me. Always ceases to amaze me? Wait a minute. How does that saying go? Never ceases to amaze me. That's it. Um... How bad some of these big-time athletes are at public relations. They either don't have anyone working in their corner, which they should, or they don't listen to them, or they're just not paying attention when big-name athletes get in trouble. Best thing to do is just take accountability, apologize, say that you've changed, and then continue every day to prove that you've changed. That's it. Should have come out today and just said, I'm sorry. I regret it. I've grown. I will continue to prove that I've grown as a man, as a leader in that locker room, and that I'll never do anything like that again. And uh, from this point forward, I just want to focus on football. I don't want, I, I won't talk about the incident. But he keeps doubling down on this idea that he disagrees. He said it again today. I disagree with the details in the report. I disagree with, with the punishment. He needs to tuck that away. He needs to mute that. So we'll see moving forward. Uh, it'll be a bigger issue as to how the Seahawks handle him now and what his long-term future is with the team. Um, there is some sense that now the Seahawks, if they want to keep him long-term, may get him at a little lower number. Um, but the fact of the matter is talent wins in the NFL. And if Jaron Reed comes back and tears it up for 10 games and plays at an elite level because he's more motivated than ever 
to earn a new contract um, and the Seahawks want to keep them, they'll have to pay market value because if they don't, someone else will. So thank you, Erica, for the call. Uh, keep them coming. And again, anyone else that wants to leave me a voice message, I would love to get more of those. It's anchor.fm backslash the Dan Cave. And you don't, I think if you do it that way, you don't even have to have the Anchor app or um, have an account, which would be free anyway. Um, you can just leave the message. So my three biggest questions as camp kicks off. We already touched on one. The defensive line. We need to see in the first two preseason games that this patchwork group of role players can become an effective defensive line that will allow this defense to be competitive while Reed is out or they're going to have to make a move. They signed Earl Mitchell this week. He's nothing more than a run stuffer. They're just going to have this rotation inside of guys like Al Woods and Jamie Meter and Puna Ford who excel mostly in run defense. And then on passing downs, they're going to have to use LJ Collier, the first-round draft pick, Quentin Jefferson, who started out as a DT for the Seahawks and then moved to end. Uh, he'll have to be used more at that pass-rushing three-technique spot on passing downs. They're going to have to manufacture a pass rush somehow. Probably going to have to blitz more, change their scheme a little bit. The good news is that Pete Carroll has a history of being able to do this, being able to adjust to what he has on hand and play to the strengths of what he has and try to keep the group away from their weaknesses being exploited. But we're going to need to see that in the first couple of preseason games or we're going to be talking about, and this will be the focus of uh, future episodes over the next couple weeks for sure, what options they have as far as potential trades during training camp. Remember, they have 10 draft picks next year they could dip into as, as draft capital to make a move. Or at the very least... Uh, certainly when all those players are released on the one cut down nowadays at the end of training camp to 53 players, there will be some guys available. They may have to make a move uh, there as well. That's one question. Another one I'm going to stay on the defensive side of the ball. It's the corner position. And, and really, let's just say the secondary. We saw promising things out of Trey Flowers at right cornerback as a rookie last year, the converted safety. We saw Shaq Griffin take a step back after a really promising rookie year. Flowers needs to continue to grow and Shaq needs to bounce back. No rhyme intended. And then they have to figure the safety thing out. Bradley McDougald, if he's fully healthy after offseason knee procedure, he's going to man one of those spots. Today, on day one, it sounded like Tedrick Thompson was at free safety and Bradley McDougald was at strong safety. It's probably his best position of the two. They got a bunch of rookies back there. Ugo Amadi and Marquise Blair, who's on the pup list right now. Shalom Luani, second-year player. Lano Hill, Lano Hill. He changed his name this year. Is that what it is, Lano Hill? Um, he's on the injured list as well. So there's some questions in the secondary. And that's not a good combination, folks. When your top two questions heading into training camp are, where's my pass rush going to come from? And your second most pressing question is, how good's my secondary? It's not a good combination. Because if you don't get pressure on the quarterback, it puts more pressure on the back end to cover. 
The good news is um, the Seahawks have an outstanding linebacking core, and that could help make up for some of that. The third one is those young receivers. Who's going to step up? How quickly can they acclimate themselves to the program? And how quickly can they mesh with Russell Wilson and become valuable pieces on the offense? Can that offense pick up where they left off last year in the running game? Because there is some continuity on that offensive line for a change. And we like the tight end group. But can DK Metcalf and Greg Jennings contribute significantly enough as rookies? Along with Tyler Lockett, probably moving more to the slot. Jaron Brown taking a step forward. Can those guys give Russell Wilson the weapons that he needs uh, to have that dynamic element to the offense that they're going to need to balance out with that running game, especially early in the season? And we're going to talk in, in the next week or so about what I think they're going to need to do on offense to help make up for some of the, the loss of Jaron Reed as well. So those are my three burning questions, three the three biggest questions, if you want to call them that as we head into training camp. All right, we'll talk about the Mariners for just a minute because it is uh, trade deadline season. Remember, there's only the one deadline this year on July 31st, so we're a week away. I just checked Twitter. No trades have been made. And this is, I think this is one of the impact, we talked about this last week, one of the impacts of the single trade deadline now. There's no longer the waiver deadline, um, or the August waiver trade period where if a player passes through waivers, um, you can trade for him or you can claim a player on waivers and try and acquire him that way. That that doesn't exist any longer. It's by July 31st at midnight or, or that's it. And so clearly teams are waiting. In past years, you've seen teams more and more aggressive in getting the jump, trying to get ahead of the market before there's a deadline that, that kind of increases the price in some cases, but also getting more service time out of that player, more value out of that player. It seems like everyone is waiting to the very end. So Mariners have not been helped by the fact that some of their most valuable trade pieces or potential trade pieces are getting injured. Um, not that D. Gordon was a valuable trade piece, but I think he's a player they would have tried to move. They would have been aggressive in including money to try to move him or packaging him with another prospect. Um, but he's on the injured list now, so he's probably untradeable if he wasn't already before. And I talked last week about how I thought that Domingo Santana was a good candidate, had a good chance to be traded by the Mariners. He's injured. Having an MRI done on his elbow, they don't think there's any severe structural damage, but it might be something that keeps him out for quite a while. Certainly it's something that might scare off teams if they were inquiring about Santana. And there were reports that the Mariners were getting a lot of calls, but... He may be off the market now, um, and that may be something that the Mariners will have to revisit in the offseason. But Mike Leak, after that dreadful start two weeks ago, where he didn't even get out of the first inning in that game at Anaheim, has put together two outstanding starts. He had the near-perfect game six days ago, and then last night, another outstanding start. And so, if there were any questions after that game in Anaheim uh, about where Mike Leak was in in you want to acquire a guy while he's playing well, certainly. Especially a guy like Meek that does leak that doesn't have dominating stuff. That's not going to just blow you away with pure raw stuff. But he's a he's a valuable guy for a contender at the back of your rotation that can eat innings, keep you in ball games. And uh, that's what Mike Leak has been in his entire career. It's what he's been the last two starts after that bad one in Anaheim. So look for Mike Leak to get moved and 
Uh, similar story with Rowan Asilius. I think um, left-hander that throws mid-90s, that can miss some bats, um, that's fairly inexpensive and still has a couple of control years left. I think we're going to see some deal involving Elias as well. Um, and I still expect the Mariners to buy. What I mean by that is to make a trade to acquire a potential major league piece that's going to be part of this rebuild that would require giving up uh, some younger prospects. And I don't think this is going to be a major deal. I think it'll be a, a smaller piece, maybe a double-A third baseman that they see as the eventual successor to Kyle Seeger because that guy really isn't in the system right now, or a young bullpen arm with upside that they think can be part of the mix next year, or a high-A starting pitcher or a double-A starting pitcher that they think two years from now can potentially be a part of the rotation. Um, I still expect them to make some kind of deal like that that looks more like a player they're acquiring as opposed to shipping somebody out to um, shed some future contract obligations and, um, and create playing time for younger players. So as I said at the top, it is uh, this is the season one finale. 43 episodes over 52 weeks and we'll launch season two next year <laughs> next year next week but i wanted to go back real quick and i looked at some of the old episodes going all the way back to to the very first one and i wanted to pick my worst take of the year and my best take of the year i'm not ashamed to admit when i'm wrong i'm not afraid to call myself out when i'm wrong so i'm going to start with the worst take You'll find it in episode 17, which was published on November 10th of last year. And it was following the Seahawks' home loss to the San Diego Chargers. A game that at the time looked crucial. They were trying to turn their season around and get some momentum going. They were coming off a bye, and it was a winnable game. It really was. San Diego did a really nice job of limiting the Seahawks' running game, though. And they got out to a lead in the second quarter. Obviously, they didn't win the game. And at the time, I believe, and I would, I would still stand by this, that the difference in that game was Russell Wilson. So let's go back and listen to what I said about Russell Wilson, about his performance in that game, and about what his potential future could be with the team contractually, and how I felt after that Charger game in my worst take of season one of the Dan Cave. Here you go. Russell Wilson was bad. The Seahawks lost by eight points with a chance to tie it on the last play of the game, and Russell Wilson had a terrible game. If he had just played okay, they would have won. Do you want to give this guy $35 million guaranteed after 2019? I don't. Let him walk, spend the money elsewhere around this, this good core that they appear to be rebuilding. Find another guy in this year's draft, if you can, to groom behind him. Because with the offensive system that you're committed to running, you don't need an elite quarterback to run it successfully. Yeah, so that's what I said back then. And look, I've, I've been a Russell Wilson fan from day one. I mean, I wrote a piece for NFL Mocks shortly after he was drafted when everybody thought Matt Flynn was going to be the starting quarterback, I said, don't count this kid out. He He's more than just a career backup. He's got starter uh, tools. He he can lead a franchise. And I, I love Russell Wilson. But I was so, I let emotion get the best of me. 
after that game. I was so upset with how he played. I thought at that point in his career, um, with as much emphasis as he was putting on being um, potentially the highest paid player in the league in the in his latest negotiations, I just thought you can't have a game like that. Can't have. I was I was mad, but that was a turning point for me. You know, the way he played the rest of the year made it very clear that it was it was just a bad game. And the way he came back from it said a lot about him. And uh, and I was fully 100% on board, um, and we talked about it a lot on this podcast, uh, with the extension and, and with him spending the rest of his career in Seattle. So um, you know, there are going to be times I'm going to be frustrated with, with Russell again in the future. You know, when people talk about parenting, they say, I love my children, but I don't like their behavior sometimes. Well, sometimes I don't like Russell's behavior, but, um, but I was wrong <laughs> that day. And it, and that episode, uh, got more feedback, more interaction online, uh, with other Seahawk fans, basically telling me I was wrong. And, and, um, um, I remember Bill Alvstad and Keith Myers were both basically telling me, look with the, the way the salary cap goes up every year, $35 million a year is not what $35 million a year was five, six, seven years ago, that it's a percentage of the cap that they'll be able to still build a team around him. And, and, and the things they've done since then have fortified my belief that, that they're uh, more committed to managing the cap properly around him. And, and so, uh, it was a bad take. It was a bad take in retrospect. And, um, you know, I felt how I felt the day that I hit record and, uh, and that's what makes it genuine, right? My best take of the year, though, I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit because going all the way back to episode four on August 8th, two months left in the baseball season, I said this about what the Mariners should do moving forward. It's easy to say, let's go out and get Bryce Harper. Let's go out and get Madison Baumgartner. It's not going to happen. The only thing you can do to get better is to start over. Tear it down. Trade your tradable assets. Get young guys back. Build back up. I went on to say after that that I thought more than any time in their history, perhaps, the Mariners were actually in position to do a rebuild and do it properly because they had assets to trade. I even went on uh, to get more detailed in that episode and episodes to follow. Trade Paxson, trade Diaz. Take it the whole way. Don't be scared. It's exactly what they did. But the reason that I thought they were in an even better position, and I said it at the time, was that I thought they had a general manager in charge who was deft enough at working trades together with his staff and the analytics department that we could maximize those assets and get uh, high-end young talent in return. And and we've seen what they did. It started as soon as the baseball season ended. They traded Mike Zanino in the first place. And, and uh, you know, now we've seen halfway through the minor league season what we have in Jared Kelenic and Justin Dunn and Justice Sheffield after he, he struggled in AAA, and now he's dominating in AA, and he'll probably get called up to the Mariners here soon. Jake Fraley, guys like that that we got back in these trades. The fact that DePoto was able to shed Cano's contract 
he was able to find the one opportunity, the one general manager who was open-minded enough to take on Cano and most of the money. And now look at what's happening with the Mets. Reports in the last 24 hours that they're now willing to trade Edwin Diaz. Because guess what? Relievers are volatile. He struggled at times this year. The Mets are a train wreck. Yes, Cano had three home runs in a game the other day, but he's hitting around 200. Um, he's been on the injured list a couple of times. The Mets are considering tearing it down now. Imagine that. And I, and I will say this. While early in this rebuild process, there was a lot of give and take with Mariner fans who thought it was a terrible idea. And those voices grew louder uh, once the team started to struggle on the field at the major league level. But I don't hear as much of that now because I think the overwhelming majority of Mariner Nation gets it and has gotten enough information about what's happening in the minor leagues that they're starting to believe that, hey, things are different now. Different owners, different GM. Just because they wear the same uniform doesn't mean it's going to go the same way it did before when things didn't work out with the Mariners when they tried to build around prospects under Jack Sarenchik. So, proud of myself for that take. <laughs> and and um, that was one that uh, I'll tease next week's episode a little bit. Episode one of season two of the Dan Cave. I'm, I have a very special guest I'm bringing on. Um, I won't fully give it away. You've heard me mention him on this episode, we're going to talk about the rebuild process again because it's something he and I have talked about for years. This wasn't just something that popped up last August. It wasn't an aha moment or an epiphany. Um, I thought it was the right way to go for a while. And I and when Jerry Depoto was first hired, I was hoping that's the direction they would go. Um, they are now, and it's it's working, I believe, and and I'm excited to see how that process evolves in the next couple of years and to follow it along on this podcast. So that's going to wrap up season one of the Dan cave. Once again, I, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support. If you're a cave dweller, if you're new to the program, please hit subscribe. And the biggest news I can pass along to you at this moment is that I'm now on YouTube. You can find the Dan cave there. Uh, every episode is there, and as I record new episodes, they'll automatically be uploaded. There's a little waveform graphic um, on it, so it's not just a boring logo you're looking at. As more and more people shift to YouTube now and cut cable, um, and they're starting to listen to podcasts there. I will say this. At some point, I plan to have this podcast also videotaped. I'm just not set up for it in my studio right now. It just wouldn't look appealing enough, but that is in the grander plans, and I hope to launch that at some point during Season 2. But in the meantime, you can queue it up on YouTube and listen to it there. Please hit subscribe there. Feel free to comment on any given episodes. I will read comments in the show, and to find it, just type The Dan Cave Podcast in the search box. It's not the first thing that comes up. Apparently, there's somebody out there who calls themselves The Dan Cave, and they really love anime. But if you just um, scroll down about four or five selections, you'll see episode one pop up there. You can go to my page from there and subscribe. Also through the Anchor app or on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, um, the show is probably there. Please subscribe as we head into season two. So thank you so much again for the support. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Thank you for listening to The Dan Cave. I'm Dan Viennes. As always, go Seahawks, go Mariners, go Cougs.